All right. Are we going to do? I guess we're going to do a show. So uh, she, we should probably get started show? at some point. Show? I thought we were. I thought we were just here to hang it's out. To Jason Trenner's everlasting regret. While I'm safe for what he wishes the show would be, I am with two guys who will not hesitate to break out in song if the moment calls for it. <laughs> and then, and then, <laughs> gentlemen, and then. He's safe with me because I'm not going to do that. But, but I know. I'm you... sure you have a lovely singing voice. Uh, Come on, Paul. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. You know, it's funny. You know, my my daughter actually has a, a very nice singing voice, and she sings in the church choir, and she sings at different events and if we're even in the car and i sing along with a song she just looks at me and shakes her head no no don't 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 do that you you need to stop that and you need to stop that right now (laughs) back to the bin Hey everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my very good friend, Dr. William Robinson. Good evening. And, dragging out of retirement from the Back to the Bins group, Michael Bailey. (laughs) I was on the side of the road. It was kind of pathetic. We'll podcast for food. He was in a van down by the river. He was hanging out with last year's winners, Whitman, Price, and Haddad. (laughs) <laughs> Bill, you know the reference? Yes, I do. Running Man. Okay. <laughs> I was afraid that one might get lost. Like our previous winners, Whitman, Price, and Haddad. You remember them? Whitman, Price, and Haddad. There they are, and at this very moment, they're basking under the Maui sun. Their debt to society paid in it almost went by me for a second. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. My uh, my go-to with Arnold will always be, my name is Freeze. Learn it well, for it's the chilling sound of your doom. <laughs> well, we have room for a goddamn contract because they're going to take it and stuff it down your throat and break your goddamn spine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a crap movie. I It's it, fun, it, but it's, it's crap. I mean, yes. it can be both. Yes. I, I, it's not one that I would ever argue is a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. But it's <laughs> Come so... on, it had Mick Fleetwood in it. Yes, it did, and it and uh, Star Trek references and uh, Frank's and was it uh, Frank Weasel Zappa? Weasel Dweezil Zappa. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I but, mean, uh, it, but it's just hat? to me, it's it's fun stupidity. I mean, you know, it's it's based on a Richard Bachman novel and uh, it's actually a different novel if you ever read it. Yeah, you know, I've yeah. read a lot of Stephen King, which is odd because I, you know, I'm 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 a terrible geek, uh, which uh, which I don't know if is really well known. I mean, I've never read any of the Harry Potter books or anything like that. But my sister <gasps> was, yeah, <laughs> my sister was quite into Stephen King growing up, so I would every once in a while pick up, you know, one of the novels she had lying around. It's where I, I learned to hate the Stanley Kubrick Shining movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I like the book so much better <laughs> than the movie, but uh, she never got any of the Richard Bachman books, so I never read it. But you know, for what it was supposed to be, which was a science fiction action movie, you know, it, it, it hits all the right beats. It's just watching it now; it's not something that I would kind of seek out. 
the book is much more closely tied to what you see in Hunger Games. There's no supervillains in the book. You know, the main guy isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it's 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 much more of a. It's kind of like a let you loose in the city and everyone's trying to find you. So it's like the Hunger Games meets, you know, Escape from New York, basically. Yeah. That's probably an apt description for it. Yeah, well, anytime you involve Arnold, things are going to change. I, I listened to this very entertaining interview with Jeff Loeb over on Word Balloon years ago where he talked about the genesis of Commando. And the original idea for Commando was that it was going to be an ex Mossad agent who comes out of retirement to save his daughter, played by Gene Simmons. Okay. But, they, uh, but they decided against that. And then his next idea, after seeing the movie 48 Hours, was let's have a guy like Nick Nolte in 48 Hours. Not Nick Nolte, but a character like that. A guy who's out of shape, who's kind of, you know, has left the life behind, you know, for his family. And then the the idea becomes not, you know, you know, when is he going to save his daughter? But, you know, is he going to be able to? And then they cast Arnold. And as he said, when is he going to save his daughter? It's an 83-minute movie, about 81 minutes of the film. And ever since that movie, I can't meet somebody named Jenny without thinking... Jenny! Jenny. It's, Jen, Jenny is Jenny. now... Instead of a J, spelled with a C-H. Yeah, apparently uh, Alyssa Milano still hears that to this day. <laughs> Wakes up in a cold sweat at night. Ah! She, she was she was on Who's the Boss for like eight years, but people still talk about Jenny or Embrace of the Vampire. Ah, <laughs> that, the thank you to all the teenage boys who watched Who's the Boss in the eighties. <laughs> we appreciate your patronage. Here are her boobs, <laughs> which she had made just for the movie. Yes. <laughs> Because the Lord knows that God didn't give her those. <laughs> so, before we get rolling, I wanted to give a shout out. Tonight's episode is going to be sponsored, even though our sponsor doesn't know he sponsored the episode. And that is because friend of the show, Dario Gonzalez, has made a donation to my cancer walk. And I want to thank him by, by acknowledging him as the show's sponsor. And for anyone else who's interested in donating to my walk, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, people who know me pretty well know I lost my brother in 2004 to pancreatic cancer, and I've been walking every, every year since. And I will be continuing to occasionally throw a link up on the Two True Freaks Facebook page for the cancer walk if anyone is interested in supporting that wonderful cause. And anybody who does, I appreciate it very much. But first... Email. What's this? A letter for me. Bill, do we have any email today? Why, yes, we do. Tonight's email comes to us from Jordan Brockman. Jordan writes, I discovered your podcast recently, and I like the comic discussions and banter you guys have. Have you done an episode on independent books? Have we done a fully independent book show? I don't know if I've done one. No, I don't think I have, at least not since I've been on the show. Mike, you're the old timer in the group. No, Scott and I usually stuck to uh, DC and Marvel. Uh, mainly, we we toyed with the idea of uh, doing like an all independent episode. My collection is not very independent heavy, 
but mm-hmm. I, I you know I do have I do have a lot of like Airboy from Eclipse Comics, which is an amazing series if you are able to track it down. Uh, the thing is, is that Scott Gardner and I have as many projects that we wanted to do as projects that we actually have done. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, that continues to be the case. There's so many different focus shows that we talk about doing, and, you know, sometimes we get to them. And it's, yeah. it's fun when we do, but you, you also don't want to give up the whole regular format for the sake of doing all focus shows either. Mm-hmm. Well, Jordan continues, uh, I would like a discussion on the best and worst books created over the years by publishers such as Image, Comico, Dark Horse, Continuity, Vertigo, etc. I am an avid collector since the early 80s. Listening to you you guys brings back good memories from when I first read the books, characters, that you were talking about. I enjoy when you riff on a certain book or story and point out how ridiculous the story situation is. Very funny. Keep it up. Jordan from East Meadow. I guess that's New Jersey or New York, New Jersey. Yeah. That is New York. New York. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> that ain't Jersey, man. Hey, I'm from Jersey. I'm from what Pennsylvania, you... which was invaded by Jersey. So, I'm from Cherry Hill. I don't know what exit that is. So, now when when somebody Mike, when somebody asks you where you're from, do you say Pennsylvania or do you say Georgia? I, I say Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania is where I spent the most years of my youth. So I, I, where were you I, at I look there? at that as home. Uh, we mainly in Allentown, around the Lehigh Valley area. Okay, because I so. spent some time in Middletown, over by Three Mile Island. Uh, I had a friend whose dad actually worked on the island, and he took us out there a few times. When I was in the Navy, we used to go up there all the time. Yeah, I, we we lived there twice when I was uh, a kid. Once when I was very young, like you know, three or four years old, and then we moved around a couple places and then came back to that area, uh, basically because my dad's job took him from various, you know, to, from place to place, uh, righting wrongs. You know, he, he was kind of like David Banner, except not. Uh, but I look at Allentown as kind of my hometown because that's where, our, you know, even though it was in the fifth grade when we moved back, that's where I graduated high school. That's where I kind of came up as a teenager. That's where I found my footing as a comic book fan and, you know, all that. So, and my dad was nice enough to take me to places like Cherry Hill uh, because they used to have like one day comic shows that were advertised in the books. Uh, mm. And he he actually, God love him. I know he had no, he had no desire to ever get into it himself, but he's, he, and, I, and I'm sure he kind of looked at it with a little bit of disdain. Uh, but he, he took me places when I couldn't drive, so that was nice. <laughs> yeah, you have to always have to look back and appreciate the sacrifices that didn't seem that big to you at the time. He had to figure out where these places were. I mean, he was somewhat familiar with the western part of New Jersey because, you know, of, of, of his job and everything. But he's the one that had to sit down, look at the map. I mean, there was there, this was before GPS, yeah, people. So, this is before Tom, Tom, and Garmin, <laughs> or, so or even MapQuest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he had to figure out where it was, and I would ask him. I go, "Do you know where the city is?" He goes, "I, I have a rough idea," and he would get us there. <laughs> He'd sit down and, with Rand McNally and yeah. get together, right? <laughs> More than likely, we did have atlases. So I mean, we had atlases. We had an entire uh, line of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which. Mm. I have no idea why they bought it. It just showed up one day, and I'm like, okay, this this will be nice for school. So I guess he figured for, with four kids, it was a good investment. So, 
I'm just thinking about this whole conversation. Though. It's kind of interesting how symmetrical it is. When I was a kid, I wanted to go to comic shows. My dad had no interest in it, and he would sacrifice and take me to the shows. Now I'm an adult. I want to go to comic shows. My kids don't, and they sacrifice, and they go to comic shows with me. <laughs> and it all, it all works out so nicely, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I'm sure you take them places you have no real desire to go to. So You would think, and yet... No. Disney. <laughs> Disney, yeah, because I have no desire to go to Disney. Well, I, you know, I I, I kind of carry that over with my wife. My wife and I both have, you know, she puts up with me, and she's the best enabler a comic book fan could have ever married. But there are things she likes to do that I'm not like dramatically opposed to, but it's not what you know, it's not like what I would suggest. So you know, she wants to go to see an Egyptian exhibit at a certain museum. Not exactly what I would want to do, but she's gone to be with me to enough comic one day comic shows where there is nothing there for her. Mm. That uh, yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can learn for a day. Does does your wife listen to us? No, that's why I'm talking now. (laughs) (laughs) So go ahead, lift all off your chest. Go ahead. No one oh, will ever hear. Uh, no, I don't trust. Oh, look, what does this CD show up in the mail for? My play this. <laughs> You'll get nothing out of me, Spataro. Nothing. It'll, it'll be addressed to Jenny Robinson. <laughs> Jenny. Yes, Jennifer is my wife's name. <laughs> it'll come in with, in with a picture of you know, all. It, it, it strikes me that, you know, we, we, we could actually, you know, Bill and I could, like, create, like, a really fun little thing where we're talking to our wives and and put in intercuts. You know, he can put in the, the Jenny, and I could put in, you know, Christian Bale yelling Rachel and, you know, Dark Knight. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll be a show that everybody will just flock to. You know, Wait. you never know, because it's always the ones that just... That, that you don't put any effort into and just do something kind of goofy that everyone remembers, but the ones that you slave over for hours and think about every note of music and every in every cut you make that everyone's just like, hey, that was pretty good. I'm gonna go pretty, get something to eat. Well, that was that was pretty uh, good. What do you mean? That was you know not too long ago when I finally figured out how to edit shows. The first show I edited, I, I kind of went crazy with putting a bunch of clips in, and and I became Scott's. Uh, criticism for your uh, get over your ass and make a podcast show when he started talking about uh, you know and then you know it's not a, a, a morning drive time radio show you don't have to put all these clips in he was talking about me <laughs> but that's okay I liked it hey I had cl- fun so and you know shift don't judge <laughs> <laughs> hey if I'd had more time with Avengers Spotlight 1 there would have been more clips in that too <laughs> I can't I, and so far since I do, since I started editing them, and I know it goes against the rule of the show because the rule of the show is it's supposed to be a generally non-edited show. But I can't help myself; I keep throwing clips in. All I know is I made myself sound wonderful. Because <laughs> that recording was pretty bad. <laughs> All right, so now let's go to a promo, and when we get back, we'll go to our books. Yeah, yeah, play it. Come on, yeah, play it loud. Play it loud. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. 
constant irritant. Then transpire out! Three! Two! Well, I'm in a circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, oh. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go and now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill off. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. So you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now, come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! TrueFreaks.com. So today, uh, Mike, you have our Marvel. Yes, I do. I have a classic from shortly before I was born. I've always <laughs> a couple stop, years ago. Stop depressing me, please. <laughs> I'm not doing it on purpose. A couple years ago, I picked up very cheap on eBay the entire Jack Kirby run of Captain America. And I got it specifically because I saw that it was a cheap lot and I didn't want to pay $75 for the omnibus. Uh, even though the omnibus does also include the bicentennial Captain America treasury edition. But I already had that. Randomly. I don't know how I got it, but I got it. So, so but I, I've always heard how crazy... The Jack Kirby, the second Jack Kirby run of Captain America was uh, that you know, and just you know, the, the apocryphal tale that that has been since proven wrong. That you know, his his run, his second run at Marvel, so infuriated the current creators at the time that they st- stacked the letters columns with uh, anti Jack Kirby letters, which, as I said, has apparently been proven wrong thanks to Brian Cronin over at uh, Comic Book comic book Urban Legends or whatever it's called over on Comic Book Resources. But I really, you know, I bought it with the, you know, and one of those things is like, ah, I'm going to read this later. And even though I've been selling off a whole bunch of my Marvel books lately, I kept all of my Captain America. And now I am really glad because tonight I'm going to tell you all about Captain America number 193. Mad Bomb! It can destroy the world. And I think this... Of any Jack Kirby Captain America cover, I think this is the one that gets shown the most when people do articles on Captain America. Now, when I was in in grade school, stores like your current store were selling this as uh, folders for kids to bring to school. This cover. That's awesome. And I can kind of see why. Because it's a great cover. It has Captain America coming at you in the background 
Falcon is being chased by an angry mob. The city is in flames. I mean, you know, you you got to think that when you uh, when you open this book, that it's going to be the most world-ending story ever. And it is called The Mad Bomb, Streamer in the Brain, written and drawn by Jack Kirby, who is also the editor of the book. Frank Giacoya was the inker, John Costanza was the letterer, and Janice Cohen was the colorist. We open on Falcon and Captain America arm wrestling as a way to take their minds off of Falcon's recent trial. There is much testosterone floating around, but suddenly the friendly banter turns to hate when both Cap and the Falcon are hit with a mysterious mind wave. The guys calm down in a hurry, but Layla, who's Falcon's friend, who I'm not familiar with, I, I will admit, is hit with a mind wave next and grabs a knife. As Falcon gently disarms her, the weird vibes spread to the street, and Cap has to bring up the shield in order to protect himself from a brick through the window. Cap jumps into the streets, leaving Falcon to deal with Layla, and things... Things are just not going well. After disarming a man that is wildly firing a gun into the air, Cap has to deal with someone jumping on his back. While the man that insists that Cap isn't jiving his way out of this, which I love, by the way, proves no match for the Sentinel of Liberty, Cap is still absolutely aghast at the riot he is witnessing. It is as if, Cap notes, every insane asylum has let out all of their inmates at once. Sadly, even his courage and the fact that he is a superhero can't save Cap from the tidal wave of people, and he finds himself swept up as the crowd goes by. After the crazed crowd thins, Cap is able to get to his feet and he spots the cause of the craziness, the mad bomb that's sitting in a nearby alleyway. Seriously, it's, I almost want to do Doofenshmirtz here. Seriously, it's, it's just sitting here. It's kind of random. <laughs> Cap grabs the bomb and goes a little crazy for a moment before he smashes it, which is a good thing because someone was about to thor him in the back of the head. That hammer that dude has looks like me over saying. The effects of the bomb cease, but Cap is still a bit shaky as he gets to his feet. The city is in shambles around him, and he notes that he hasn't seen anything like this since World War II. Suddenly, Cap spots a woman that is about to be crushed by a whole bunch of falling debris, but thankfully the Falcon arrives just in time to save her. After getting the woman to safety, the two heroes talk about what's going on before a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, which you really don't know who this guy is until they tell you, because he doesn't identify himself as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, but he steps forward and explains that everything was caused by the device in his hands. Cap examines the Mad Bomb and sees that it is a simulated human brain that, well, it causes people to go crazy. I mean, that's all that really matters, right? I mean, all the gobbledygook and, ex and explanation just is just, just kind of filler at this point. Soon, Cap, Falcon, and the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent are on a plane heading towards, the Mad, Bo towards Mad Bomb Central, the agent reveals that there is a conspiracy afoot. Cap proves that he has learned the definition of irony by listening to Alanis Morissette by saying that it is <laughs> ironic that there is a conspiracy during the Bicentennial. When you really think about it, the entire concept of the American Revolution was a conspiracy. Just saying. The two heroes are led into the facility and immediately things go haywire as they are not only gassed, but fired upon by weird metal spears, and then the walls threaten to crush them until Cap happens to find a small button that opens the floor. It is then that Cap, Cap and Falcon are faced by the man behind all of the tests. Henry Kissinger. 
I'm not even kidding here, folks. Jack Kirby has drawn a dead-on Henry Kissinger. Henry orders his men to attack, but when they prove no match for our star-spangled hero, he orders them to stop, and he explains that they had to test him because that's how Jack plotted the story. Kissinger explains that things are bad, real bad. The first mad bomb, labeled Peanut, destroyed a small town. The next and larger bomb, labeled Dumpling, messed up an even larger town. The one that Cap'n Falcon dealt with, de- dealt with was a slightly larger, but the ultimate plan is even more insidious. The shocked hero's watch is Henry Kissinger. I mean, when did you ever think you were going to write, listen to a comic book synopsis where someone says the shocked hero's watch as Henry Kissinger does anything? <laughs> well, you got to remember, this is only about 15 issues after he, uh, he got Nixon to commit suicide. <laughs> But Henry reveals the next bomb, labeled Big Daddy, that it's time to destroy the entire United States at the start of the Bicentennial. And it will happen unless Cap and the Falcon can find him and stop him. Or die in the process. Now I know what you're thinking. And, and, and oh no Andrew, you don't. <laughs> and as Andrew Leyland and, uh, and Magnum P.I. would say, and you're right, but Mike, that sounds batshit crazy. And you're right. But you know what? Oh, you do know what I'm thinking. This was the most fun I have had reading a comic in a long time. And I really now want to read the rest of the second Jack Kirby run. Because if it's half as crazy as this, it's going to be one of the most fun rides ever. I absolutely loved this book. Not in a, I think it's the best example of Captain America ever, because it's crazy. But man, just on a pure visceral level, it's a lot of fun. And I gotta say, I really like the art throughout the entire issue. Jack really, you know, he pulls out all the stops throughout the entire 20 some odd pages of this story. And, you know, you know, not only does Captain America look awesome, in my opinion... But everybody on the street, as, as they're attacking him, looks great. And then there's this beautiful splash page of the entire city in flames around him. And all these people lying on the ground, and they are messed up. I just I just absolutely loved this book. It's, it's crazy. It's weird. And it seems like Jack's kind of making it up as he goes along. But at the same time, that's part of the charm with it. Because the point of this is not to tell an intricate Captain America story, it's an action romp, and he really doesn't shy away from that. I think things start to get just maybe a little bit off the rails when Henry Kissinger shows up. But again, nah. What the hell? Henry Kissinger, really? (laughs) I mean, and he even has some talking with the accent. Yeah. Right. Uh, but not, uh, now, gentlemen, you just listen. Time for a short file our agents search to the enemy. <laughs> not bad. I can do a fair Henry Kissinger. No, I, I just, you know, I, I don't really have anything specific because it's all so crazy. But I just, I just liked it. I mean, did you read this when it first came out, Paul? Yes, I did. Yes, and, I did. And, and I actually anxiously awaited this one. I think. You were still doing this regularly with me and Scott when we covered, uh, Scott brought in an issue of The Shadow that Frank Robbins had drawn. Yeah. And just before Kirby came back to Marvel, Frank Robbins had been drawing Captain America. And even though the stories were fairly well written, Frank Robbins is an acquired taste. And as a 
whatever I was, 12, 13 year old at the time, uh, I wasn't really appreciating Frank Robbins at that age. And when they announced that Jack Kirby was coming back and that he was going to be doing Captain America, I was gung-ho for it. And yeah, I read this as it came out. And I appreciated it, but I think I appreciated it more as an older reader with perspective. I, I, I think this is more fun looking at it. You know, when, when you look at it and you're saying to yourself, it's just silly fun, as opposed to, you know, uh, a 13-year-old who's trying to get a visceral excitement out of reading a comic, you know? Yeah. Uh, no, it's... I definitely enjoyed it, I, I, and I love it more now, like like you. And and I would say definitely read the rest of the Kirby run because it's just as far out and out there. And I would also recommend to you, uh, contemporary to this, the Black Panther run that he did. I just think, you know, he, he had been doing... He left Marvel, he went to DC, and depending on who you talk to, DC either screwed him over or he just kind of... You know, the, the books ran their course the way they were. And they just, but you know, the the prevailing theory is that DC promised him some things that they didn't deliver on, so he goes back to Marvel. And the stuff he produced at DC, I haven't read all of, but looking at it, it and, and looking at a book we're going to be talking about a little later, as a matter of fact, you know, it it, it has that same sense of excitement. I, I read the first couple issues of the Demon last year that he wrote and drew, and it's. It's really, it wasn't what I was expecting at all. I mean, it was just... Again, he seems to be writing things as if he's making it up as he goes along. Mm-hmm. But that's just... I mean, it's not like a you know, Robert Kaniger story, which is you know seriously making up as they go along. But it seems like he is just more concerned with the visuals and the way to tell the story that way. And going with that theory and sticking to it, there, there's, a, there's a lot of people who look constipated throughout the entire issue... <laughs> but at the same time, you know, why have Cap walk into a room when he can jump into a room, you know? And I, I will always, you know, some of my favorite Kirby stories ever are Cap stories where the action just pops off the page. And, you know, he, he does a good job of the Falcon, who I really don't have an opinion on one way. I've never really, it's not like I dislike the character, but I've never really been like, ooh, the Falcon, I need to read more of this. So I don't know if that makes sense or anything. But What's an interesting aspect of the whole Falcon thing is just before this, there was a pretty well-written, again, it was Frank Robbins, and you have to have an appreciation for that art, but a pretty well-written story about how uh, the Falcon was actually a plant by the Red Skull, that he had been mm-hmm. a, a kind of a bad guy in, the, in Harlem, and that when the Red Skull had the Cosmic Cube back in issue 117 when the falcon was originally introduced uh he had planted him there and something happened that he triggered the reversion back to you know him being a bad guy snap wilson and he became snap wilson and and he actually like sided with the red skull and then eventually came to his senses but then there was a trial and it was it was pretty interesting and while he makes reference to it he totally sweeps it under the carpet and it's basically gone at this point (laughs) frank robbins a great writer I absolutely love every Batman story of his that I've ever read. Uh, I do not like his art. Most it, most people I speak to don't, and, and I understand that. There's just something about how everybody looks weightless in his pictures that, that I find enticing and attractive from an art point of view. 
I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not what I want to see because I, I, you know, I, I have like a full run of the Invaders, and he did a lot of early issues of that title, and I can kind of see why because he he had a bit of a Kirby aesthetic, a, a Golden Age own. Kirby aesthetic. Yeah, so it, you know, it kind of it kind of jibed, and I know that Roy Thomas absolutely loved his artwork. I just never developed an appreciation for it. There's this another aspect of, of Frank Robbins' artwork that I don't know why, but to me, all of the characters looked like they were hanging out in, in on a 95-degree, 100% humidity <laughs> day. They all just looked like that frazzled, I-can't-take-the-heat look about them. And I don't know, there's something about it, like I said, that just I, I enjoy at this point. As a kid, I did not. It, it you know there's, there's certain artists that I had to get older before I could appreciate, and he was definitely one of them. And, and uh, some of Kirby's stories also, you have to look at that way. Like, uh, a lot of this stuff, you know, because he kind of worked outside the mainstream Marvel universe in, in this whole story, and, and the continued stories as it went on. And that's where he introduced Arnim Zola and, and a lot of other aspects of that. But a lot of this got swept under the carpet as well and has recently been brought, about, brought back because uh, in Brubaker's run on Captain America towards the end, he went into the Mad Bomb thing. He brought that back, and uh, I'm trying to remember what the other aspect of it was that I that I was going to hit on. Oh, and, and the current the current run with uh, Rick Remender is clearly trying to bring back this Kirby-esque type thing where he put Cap off in you know on another planet basically that Arnim Zola has created and, and trapped him on. And I, I read the first few issues and I didn't care for it actually. And then Andy covered it on Hey Kids Comics with his Marvel Now. Uh, coverage and it made me kind of take a look at it again and 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 give it a second second look and and on second look i like it a lot more than i did on the first and it is pretty evocative of kirby's work what'd you think bill well i have not really been a big jack kirby fan but lately with doing back to the bins i've started to go out and and seek out um more jack kirby and that Black Panther stuff that you guys are talking about, I do have s- some of those, and I like that stuff. That is awesome. And and here, uh, you know, you've got the Kirby Crackle, and the way that he does draw draw the figures that you know they are leaping off the page at you. They're very dynamic, and this story is just out there. But it's but but it's great. I mean, this is more. This reminds me of some of the out there Avenger stories of this time frame as well. And you know, I mean. I, I like this book, and I like the next book uh, that uh, Paul picked, which is another Kirby book. So I was I was I was having a lot lot of fun reading this one and the next one as well. I know I don't have as much to say as you guys did on this. That's all right. Uh, you, you have what you have. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I was never a big Captain America reader. I I read it more towards the mid '80s to the '90s, and I've never really gone back and read a lot of the '70s. So this this is another gray area for me that I'm you know learning about and getting caught up on. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of funny though because in my experience with Captain America, uh, who is who's one of my favorite Marvel characters and one of my favorite superheroes in general, is that he is really one of these characters that goes in waves. Like there'll be like a, a ton of great stories and then like a dearth of kind of mediocre. To bad stories like right around the time that uh john byrne and roger stern took over the title right before they came on it was a little meh 
And then they do this spectacular run of Captain America, which I cannot recommend highly enough. And then after that, there's like six six or so issues of fill-ins and stuff until J.M. DeMatteis takes over. And then you have another really solid run of Captain America where he goes into the future and meets Deathlock and you have these great Mike Zek covers mm. that are just brilliant. And then after they leave until Mark Gruenwald takes over, you know, it, it, it meanders again. Gruenwald comes on and immediately starts doing, I wouldn't want to call them theme issues, but he creates characters that are supposed to represent different aspects of America in the 80s. Like, um, what was that guy? Madcap was mm. basically the, you know, anarchy. And then John Walker is introduced, and he is patriotism gone wrong and all and that. Was it, the, was it Flag Smasher in there, too? Yes, he, w he represented, you know, no nationalities and all that. <laughs> and so, you d so he does some, like, pretty decent stories but then he does the whole captain america quits and john walker becomes captain america and you have like a year and a half of really great stories to the point where steve rogers wasn't in like three or four issues but you're still so engaged with what grunwald's doing that it's not that you don't mind but you don't really notice and then he comes back and then after that it was kind of crap until Ron Lim took over as artist. Where did Cap Wolf come in? That was in the early 400s. So that was, yeah. Yeah, Gruenwald and I will not speak ill of him because one, he's not with us anymore and that seems kind of rude. Uh, and two, it just, I just don't have it in me tonight. But Gruenwald's run on Cap was really hot and cold. When it was good, it was great. And when it was bad, it was almost unreadable. And I hate to say that, but it's just like I, I he told like several really solid Captain America stories, but then the others weren't just weren't as good. And I, I know he he had a love for the character, but still, I, I don't think that's you know disrespectful or speaking ill of the dead. You know, the fact that the guy passed away, I certainly have sympathy for that. And you know, but but the quality of the story is what the quality is. It's either good or it's not good, and you know. It doesn't matter whether he's with us or not. If it was a great story, it, you know, then that that holds up as well. There is a a brief mention in the bullpen's bulletin about the Fantastic Four radio show that was playing at the time. Yes, and it has a full list of radio stations. Uh, two notes about this: one, they, they get the Allentown Bethlehem Easton one wrong by calling it Caston, which bugs me because. That's the Lehigh Valley, Allentown, Bethlehem, and Easton. But also, I, I suspect Paul has. Bill, have you ever heard this show? I have. Mm, not sure. Okay. You ever want to hear Bill Murray as the Human Torch? Listen to this show. Yeah. And and it's it's not a well, you know, it's not like you can't tell it's Bill Murray. It, it almost sounds like Bill Murray from Caddyshack. Yes. <laughs> Does I remember like in in the first episode or the first issue of the Fantastic Four? I mean, they basically, you know, they did they were true to the original show, but I remember like you know there's the scene when uh, he's talking about it, the hot rods and and they cut to that with Bill Murray. And he's like, you know, guys, what I told you about me with the cars, <laughs> and it's it's like my God, <laughs> it's it, a story. <laughs> it's like it's freaking it's freaking Call Spangler from Caddyshack. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> 
they they are available for download on the internet, I, and I believe legitimately available. Not uh, really. Yeah, I'm not glad a... that I'm glad that they got a legit re- release because for a while there they did it. I re- they're interesting basically because they kind of just read the first ten issues of the Fantastic yeah. Four. <laughs> it's just a fascinating experiment in the mid '70s, and it's like Bill Murray right before Saturday Night Live took off. I think it was before Saturday Night Live, period. Yeah, because he was part. Was he part of the the? He was in the second original. Season? He was in the original crew on Saturday Night Live, but he he replaced Chevy Chase, so he wasn't on the first season. He repl- that's really weird to consider. I never knew that. Well. There we go. I'm happy to to give you one tidbit that you did not know already. But that's all I got on this. It was a. F- I mean, seriously, track it down, read it. It's just. It, do not go in expecting that it's going to change your life, or that it's going to be the quintessential Captain America story. Just go in knowing one. If you get the original issue, there is a hostess ad with Spider Man, uh, yeah. where somebody kidnaps Aunt May and doesn't kill her, thus proving they are useless to me as crooks. Um, and at the end of the of the ad, Aunt May uh, serves uh, Peter irradiated Twinkies because they're kind of <laughs> But whatevs. But I mean, seriously, what other Captain America story is Henry Kissinger just going to show up? And are there members of our audience who even know who Henry Kissinger is? I I, I think his reputation is still uh, good enough that most people would remember him from back then a couple of little just little points in this one uh the scene when the uh guy comes up and you know gotcha man you ain't driving your way out of this one the guy the guy's got hair but he's wearing a pork pie hat and he's got a, a van dyke and he gives me a, the vibe of brian cranston from breaking bad <laughs> and I, I obviously it's 40 years before that but that's still what it made me think of the shield agent they don't tell you who he is but the way he's dressed how could he be anything but a shield agent with, with his fedora and, and his dark glasses. Clearly a government agent just walking up. And yes. my the last, just the last note I had was that I, I like the fact that when they walk in on Henry Kissinger, he's looking at his watch like, you know, it's about time you guys got here. Well, Tokyo's along. Anybody else got anything on this one? No, that's it. Uh-huh. All right, I guess we'll shift to our DC issue now, which is mine. And I picked... And I did this independent of Mike, so we didn't say, hey, let's do a Kirby show, but we managed to do a Kirby show. Because I picked Commandy number 29 from May of 1975, and it's got a 25-cent cover price. The cover on it is kind of oddly compartmentalized. It's from the era where the top portion was separate, separate from the cover image and had a different color in the background. It wasn't just part of the drawing in that, at that time. And the cover declares that when the great disaster had destroyed all else, his name was still alive. The Legend. And from Mike's Amazing World, I did confirm I already knew that the cover was drawn by Jack Kirby, but I confirmed that it was inked by D. Bruce Berry, who I am not otherwise familiar with. The cover shows Commandy and an ape fighting over a fire pit on the right side of the uh, cover. And on the left side... They have a stone wall, and and Superman's costume is hanging. And I can't imagine how any 12-year-old in 1975 could have passed up on this book if they saw that cover. I, I, I 
don't really remember seeing it back then, but I know I would have been all over it. The story is edited, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby. It's inked and lettered by D. Bruce Berry. And it's credited as having been from an idea suggested by Steve Sherman. And the story starts off by telling us, where do myths and legends come from? Facts lost in antiquity remain alive through the ages in forms which grow stranger with the passing years. In the wake of the great disaster, such a thing has happened. The past has refused to bury someone familiar to us all. Ask Commandy, the last boy on Earth. Chapter 1 of the story is titled The Mighty One, and the splash page shows Commandy and Ben Boxer looking skyward and seeing an airborne ape streaking across the sky. The second and third pages, as was Kirby's norm uh, in his DC run, is a very big splash page, and we could see that that uh, Commandy and Ben Boxer are looking at a stone wall which has a vague art image of Superman on it. Not really too clear, so you couldn't make out exactly who it is. Uh, and it's got kind of a cartoon form retelling of his history and his legend. And all they call him in that is the Mighty One. They don't call him Superman. Commandy and Ben are approached by a group of apes who are declaring that Ben who wears an odd red costume that looks like it has an image of a sperm moving across the chest. Uh, they call him the mighty, they say he's the mighty one, and Ben starts to balk, but Commandy says to let the apes talk. At that we go to chapter two, the legend, and it opens with Ben being attacked by a gorilla named Zuma, who says that he cannot be the mighty one. The two of them fight, but are stopped by an elder ape, who basically says that their rules require that he prove that he is the mighty one and we see that they have a catapult that the gorillas use to help them start to fly <laughs> and that's what they saw at the beginning when they saw that ape streaking across the sky and they're letting one shoot off at that moment and as he's going he yells up up and away and he soars off until well gravity takes hold and well we all know where that'll go with that over they begin to refocus on Ben who shows how he has a secret identity by using his power to transform into a steel alloy. And that convinces some of the apes, but not Zuma. At that, we move on to chapter three of our story, which is called Deceive or Die. And it gives us Ben's next trial, where they have a giant boulder that he has to move. And they call the giant boulder the Daily Planet. And Zuma quickly says that he'll move it, and he kind of jumps ahead, but he can't move it. Then Ben starts to push on it, and he's not able to move it, but what he does is he uses his feet to kind of dig a rut around it, and then allows the boulder to roll into that rut uh, on the unstable ground that he created, so he gets credit for having moved it. And Zuma declares that he still isn't convinced, and stirs up the other apes into demanding one more test. The next, next test is supposed to be faster than a speeding bullet, and they open fire on him with a gatling gun, which brings us to chapter 4. Save the supersuit. So Ben is on the ground because the bullets bounced off of his steel skin, but the elder ape declares that he evaded the rain of bullets and that he has basically won that competition to show that he is the mighty one. At this point, he goes back to his uh, Ben goes back to his human form, and the elder ape brings them to the vault of the supersuit, where Zuma attacks Ben and tries to grab Superman's suit, which is hanging inside. Commandy attacks Zuma, and they battle, which ends when Zuma falls to a grisly fate inside of a fiery pit. Commandy says that he knows 
that the person who owns the suit is still alive, and Ben says that the true Mighty One will return and that they, the suit should be taken and held untouched until the Mighty One returns. And the tribe agrees that they'll do so because he's won the trial and they have to listen to him now. And that's the end of our Commandy story. I love this issue. I thought this was great. First of all, I loved Commandy in general because I was a big Planet of the Apes fan and I was the target audience for this book because that's what they did. They said to Kirby, come up with something like Planet of the Apes for, for the young kids who like that stuff. And I see, was all over it. See, now, you got me in, now you've got me interested in Commandy because the only uh, exposure I've had to Commandy was in, um, uh, was it Countdown? Countdown to Crisis? Uh, yeah, I think he was in Countdown at some point. Or was it in, uh, 52? I thought it was or in maybe Countdown, it was both. but I'm not sure. Yeah, because, uh, and, uh, and I hadn't really known about, I hadn't read The Last Man on, you know, The Last Boy on Earth, and I think there was the this late, later Superman one, like the older Superman with the uh, gray beard. I'm sure Mike can reference that. Uh, there was a uh, Commandy six-issue miniseries in, like, mm-hmm. 93, 94. And then they did a Elseworlds special. It was an Elseworlds series. But they did, like, a one-shot prestige format called Superman at Earth's End with Santa Claus biker Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe that's uh, the one I've seen, yeah. Because he had, like, this huge white beard. Uh, I've never read the Commandy miniseries, but I did read the At World's End uh, which made no sense to me because I had not read the <laughs> the miniseries that preceded it. So uh, I'm kind of interested because because like everything Jack Kirby did at DC Comics fascinates me. Like Demon me, me and and Commandy and the Fourth World Fourth stuff. World. Yeah. Mainly because it's stuff that for some reason creators cannot let go of. To a certain, you know, with maybe the exception of Commandy, uh, who really hasn't gotten, you know, too many series of his own. In fact, I think right around the crisis, they decided to kind of try to sidestep the whole issue by saying that Commandy eventually becomes Tommy Tomorrow. Uh, I think that's what they established. Did they say he the becomes him or that he's like related to him somehow? Well, the, uh, well, there was something I think. What was it in fifty in the build up to fifty two where they were talking about there was that they were going into the command D bunker. Yeah, that was the the whole thing Morrison came up with that uh, Palmiati and Gray wrote that Battle for Bloodhaven miniseries, and that was the end of it where they went into Command D, and that kind of led into Final Crisis a little bit as well. Uh, Michael Leyland could probably chart that course. <laughs> a little more than my adult mind can. Right, Michael, point. we're calling out to you to do that now. But no, I, I just save us. <laughs> save the, the old man. Idea. My, it, it, this is going to sound really weird. My main exposure to Commandy was in the Superboy title from the mid from the uh, late nineties, because when Tom Grummet and Carl Kessel came back to that series, they threw Superboy into a Commandy type world. Uh, where he was the last boy on Earth, and all of the the anthropomorphic creatures were around him and stuff. So it's just such a it's just such an awesome idea that I don't know if I would be disappointed in the result of reading the books, but part of me really wants to find out. Well, the the thing about these Kirby books, and I mean it's true for the the, the book that you covered, it's true for this too, is 
it's they're silly and they're not like on their face they're not that deep but when you start looking at them they really really are deep and there's a lot there there's a lot under the surface and i think that's why writers can't let it go because there's just so much there that they think oh I, you know there's so much to mine yeah and, i mean I, I i really have to dig out my fourth world books because i have an entire run of both new gods and forever people at this point and I think there's just there's a raw power to it that can't be denied you can sit there and not like the specifics of it but it's hard to argue with the sheer just drama of the whole thing he amped everything up to 11 didn't always make sense dialogue wasn't always perfect but god love him for trying I would love to have seen you know and it's the kind of thing you know you have one reality and you can't you're never going to have two obviously because we don't live in the world with the watcher but i would love to see what the fourth world stuff would have been like if it had been lee and kirby doing it and and you had lee to kind of ground it just a little bit mm. see the thing is is that i don't want stanley anywhere near the dc universe no because Certainly not at it, this point in his life. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, no, beyond that, it's just like when they did that whole Stan Lee. Oh yeah, Stanley presents Superman. Or but Stan even Lee that, that was Superman. that was the retired Stanley. I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just, you know Stanley of 1970 when when this stuff was coming out or 71. I would love to have seen what he would have done with what Kirby was handing him. It would have been interesting, but I, I just I don't think you can capture that lightning twice. Because as, as much as all of the stuff they did together, you know, was a varying degree of good and bad, I don't think anything will ever top their run on Fantastic Four. No, but I, but I think in many ways, a lot of that fourth world stuff has that same depth that the Fantastic Four did. Uh, you know, I mean, think about the worlds that Kirby created, you know, with, with the negative zone and Galactus and, and the Inhumans and all this stuff that he brought in there. And, and I you know, I always felt when people try to give credit to one over the other, I think it's silly because I think that, that it was the team that did it. I mean, Kirby had this incredible imagination and then Lee could just come up with backstories and, and explanations for it all that all made sense and helped it to fall together. And I think that's where the fourth world sometimes fails is it's just so complex and it wasn't organized in any way. It was just thrown out there and you needed somebody to make it, have it make sense. Yeah. You know, he probably would have definitely benefited for somebody coming in and, you know, giving him a little, you know, giving the dialogue at least, uh, you know, a good lo looking over. But at the same time, then you wouldn't have what resulted in it. And I honestly think that outside of using Darkseid as a bad guy every once in a while, I don't know, and I can't say this for sure because I haven't read all the series, I don't know if anybody, can, you know, they keep trying to bring these ideas back. And I don't know if you can really do that because it seems so specific to the time and place. And again, these creators just can't seem to let it go. Yeah, because because they, they I think they see the potential and and you know for the most part they fail to realize it, but they <laughs> but they they keep trying because they see that it's there. I mean, some of these characters are just awesome. You but know, I absolutely. Go ahead, Mike. Just real quick, I absolutely loved this issue. I didn't know what we were getting into, but 
just the idea that they were flinging these people in this giant catapult. <laughs> and they'd yell up, up, they and away. <laughs> up, up, and away. Up, up, and away. Boom. But I also love the way he ties it all in with, you know, how Superman's presence, you know, like he's, he's not even conceding that in this far-flung future that Superman's no longer with them. And, and I'm sure eventually there would have been something where there would have been some sort of character and you would have been left with the question of, was that really Superman? But I, Ooh. but that's what I loved is that it, more than anything, it's a love letter to who Superman and what he represents. And I think that's what really grabbed me about this issue was even though Superman isn't in it, the spirit of Superman and what he means to people is. And for a man that was, you know, one of the co-creators of the Marvel Universe to tell this kind of story was very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. Who is Ben Boxer and why is there a sperm on his <laughs> You like the sperm? <laughs> I see I I just I didn't see that until you you pointed it out. I was like, "Wow, that's exactly what that is." Strange. Ben Boxer was one of the nuclear people of Earth AD, along with his colleagues Steve and Ramsey. He fought against the tyranny of the Tiger Empire. Ben Boxer helped to liberate a young boy named Commandy from the Tiger Empire's clutches, along with his, along with the help of a scientist named Doctor something. Doctor Zayas. Doctor Zayas. Doctor Zayas. Doctor Zayas. Doctor Zayas. He apparently was a, and I don't really remember. I I loved this series when it was out, but I have so little memory of the actual issues. But he was apparently a uh, running co-star in the Commandy series for hmm. quite a while. Now, wasn't it eventually revealed that Commandy or Ben Boxer had something to do with Omac? There w- there was definitely something where they tied the two of those together. Uh, but I don't remember what the explanation was on it. Did you notice on page eight that they go to the demonstration course, but that top that top panel D C? Oh no, I didn't notice that. Very good. Yeah, good I was catch. like, ah, oh, D C. Interesting. Chapter four. The only thing I could think of was uh, Samuel. L. L. Jackson. Where is my super suit? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Uh, the guy who inked this, who I'm not really familiar with, uh, D. Bruce Berry, seemed to have a little bit too light of a hand on the pencils. I think he it would have served it well for him to flesh it out just a little better at some points. Okay. I'm just checking out. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I was just scrolling through the pages looking at the art. Checking out the different apes. I, I, I like the fact that they're such zealots to the Superman legend that they want so badly to be, you know, the uh, Superman, the, the mighty, mighty one. That they're, they're allowing themselves to be catapulted just in hopes that somehow some superpower is going to manifest itself in them. And, and you know that when they're launched, their thoughts are this is it, this is the moment. This is the time when all my, my, the momentum and the moments are in rhyme. And just as they reach their apex and start their fall is when the realization that they're about to die starts hitting them. And probably they start, that... each one of them starts to madly flap his arms like a Yes, person. exactly. <laughs> I didn't think this through. I can see my house from here. <laughs> or 
as always, the best. I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he lives. Yeah, that's the. Thank you for the lip service, sir. <laughs> I hope he lives too. He's not gonna live. <laughs> Where do they get a Gatling gun? In space. They're not, no, it's not space. This I is. Oh, I was doing a joke. <laughs> This Earth of doing the where people was, walk around with giant sperms on their chest. I was doing an airplane two joke. Oh, uh, the bobby pin. What's a man doing with a bobby pin in space at this hour? Anyway, <laughs> that fell flat. <laughs> I appreciated it. Thank you, Mike. I guess Paul's a little too old for that movie. I did see it. <laughs> in fact, I saw it in the, in the theater. But I don't have any memory of that particular joke. Sorry. I saw it on cable over and over and over. I just remember William Shatner saying, isn't irony ironic? <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I remember in that movie, because it just did not live up to the level of the first one. We should have him talk to Stephen Lacey about that. <laughs> they can have a long discussion. All right. So... I think Why does Commandy look like Sue Storm? He did have the same hairdo. <laughs> He's got the little curl at the top. He kind of differentiates. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. It's Sue Storm. That's a man, baby. That's a man. It's it's kind of weird though that like Commandy's walking around, you know, with a pair of tattered cut-off jeans and uh Ben Box has got this whole, you know, uniform with, you know, boots and I don't know. Just, just looks so weird. It looks out of place in this, you know, in a dystopian future. Maybe Commandy likes to be comfortable. He goes Commandio. Hmm. Uh, nah, that didn't work either. Uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate your effort, though. Man, that's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, dude. dude, that's creepy. All right, and so uh, we'll go on to our third book now. <laughs> Yes, which has nothing to do with Jack Kirby. Well, I. I However, to, you first told me what you were picking. For some reason, I thought of Devil Dinosaur, so I, I uh, in mind uh, I Kirby. That would have been beautiful. Well, but instead, I picked something that, not even knowing that Mike was going to be on the show, it kind of ties into one of our discussions, our many discussions of Torok. <laughs> Because uh, Rock Dinosaur Hunter, most there we go. Comic ever. <laughs> but instead, we have uh, Dinosaurs for Hire. Um, this is Tom Mason's Dinosaurs for Hire, Volume Two, Number Seven, from uh, August 1993. This was put out by Malibu Comics. Cover price of two fifty. And um, now, for anyone who doesn't, I didn't. I picked this con- comic totally at random, so. I did a little back history just to read up on it. Dinosaurs for Hire was a satire book uh, created by Tom Mason. The characters in the book are um, actually aliens who resemble smaller versions of Earth dinosaurs. We have a character named Archie, which is a T-Rex who likes to dress like the Terminator. We have Lorenzo, which is a Triceratops who wears a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, We have a one-eyed Stegosaurus. whose name is Reese, and he is the heavy weapons expert, and we have a pterodactyl named Cyrano. And they crashed Earth, and uh, 
they decide to become mercenaries. Now, this is created by Tom Mason. Uh, Volume 1 was published by Eternity Comics in 1988, and it was later... uh, published again in 1993 by Malibu which had acquired e- e- Eternity. Have either of you guys read any of the Dinosaur for Hire stuff? No. No? No, but so, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated with what Malibu was putting out around this time and the ads in this book kind of remind me of things like the Protectors and the Ferret and X-Mutants, which mutants. actually got its own video game at one point. Well, there was also a Dinosaurs for Hire video game. Um... Really? That I, yeah, that was it was on the wiki page. So, our issue here. <laughs> I, oh, I like I'm that. sorry, Not that I... I remember it, but it was on the wiki page. So. Well, <laughs> that is a source for all information. Well, that's where I got most of this information. Okay, we have uh, on our cover we have Tourette, Hunter O Dinosaurs, and uh, it's obviously we have a parody of Turok. And uh, Turret is getting ready to shoot an arrow, uh, shoot Archie with an arrow. So our actual book title is Tourette's Syndrome. (laughs) Creator-writer Tom Mason, pencils Leonard Kirk. Inker um, is Tur Palette. I don't know if that's someone's actual name or an anagram or someone's other trick or play of words. Letterer is Tom Eldridge. Editor is Roland Mann. And we open up to Cyrano. Cyrano the pterodactyl is conversing with Dracula, I guess. Like I said, this is the first issue I've read of this title, so I'm not really sure why Dracula is there. But it does make me think of Werewolves of London, because his hair is perfect. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) He's got false Pataro hair. Werewolves of London. And that's for anyway. you, Jason Trenner. <laughs> Which we haven't got any emails, buddy. Come on. <laughs> He's probably mad at us for the for, for sticking him with the spam uh, theme song. Maybe he didn't like my uh, my Christopher Walken reading of his uh, of his email. <laughs> anyway, Cyrano asks Drac, uh, "Can he smell all the blood rushing to his head since he's hang- hanging upside down?" Drac tell- tells him. Hey, I like you, Cyrano, if only your blood weren't so cold. Uh, we switch to the skyline of Manhattan, where a lone figure jumps along the rooftops. He, To me, his inner monologues sound like a lot like Paul Spataro doing Gary Cooper. Cue Paul Spataro. All right, I got to hold on. Hold it! <laughs> In the city of Manhattan, I hunt the night. I have moved from my jungle home to this concrete jungle. But a jungle is a jungle. It doesn't matter where it is on the map. As long as I have my... As long as I've got my tomahawk, my bow, and my knife. My name is Shadow... uh, uh, Turret. And I am taking back the night. Taking back the night indeed. Sheesh, what a stupid slogan. What moron thought that up? We leave Tourette for now and find the dinos for hire gathered around Reese, the one-eyed heavy weapon specialist, while he is being given a shot by the professor. Professor who? Professor Hottie, that's who. Also, it should be noted here that uh, needles make Drac queasy, which is a bit strange for a, uh, a vampire. But anyway, 
So the professor's ultra growback serum, oh, aptly named, causes a, a new arm to uh, to grow out of uh, Reese's arm, where we're recently, I guess, in the previous issue, he had lost it uh, hunting the ghost that they are previously trying that they're currently trying to hunt in this hotel. Reese asks, asks if they can just give him back the old one, and Archie, um, the T-Rex, tells him, nah, we already gave it to the dog. In an alley somewhere in the city, we are given a description that this could be the first page of any number of lame Marvel comics. So obviously, <laughs> there's not a lot of love for the competition, or at least some uh, some uh, nice poking at them. Um, Which is ironic, since Marvel eventually acquired them. Yes, I don't think it was too many years. I think it was what about ninety-seven, ninety-eight when they started. Uh, they started having all the crossovers with Rune and and the Avengers and Ultra Force and all that. So yeah, but I think they acquired them for their coloring process, didn't they? Yeah, that's the story that I've heard. Yeah. So a helpless female turns out to be not so helpless as she kicks the crap out of her three attackers. The mysterious turret congratulates her. On her winning against the odds, she tells him her defense class has finally paid off and she doesn't need the help of any superhero. Uh, and and after all, and with a nice little gentle on the pat on his shoulder, she is quickly rewarded with an arrow to the gut. <laughs> 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 Turret tells her, oh, this would be uh, your cue, Paul. <laughs> yes, you do need the help of superheroes. The world needs the help of superheroes because I'm a super villain I am turret hunter o dinosaurs cut back to the dinos as a gentleman named Weinstock bursts in screaming at them to get out there and stop the ghost that's been hunt haunting the hotel that they're in. Drac grabs Weinstock by the throat and whines that it's too bad that he's that uh, there's never enough blood in these little guys like him. The dinos tell him that they are all in position and waiting for a sighting of Samantha the ghost. As of on cue, Lorenzo, the Stegosaurus in the Hawaiian shirt, whose call sign is Dead Baby, <laughs> responds to Helen Keller, the professor's call sign, that he has spotted Sam and is going in to... And he's going in and to save him some pizza. Bursting into room 1313, he finds only a naked couple in the bed. After a few apologies, the couple scream and point behind him. Turret stands, bow in hand, pointed right at Lorenzo's center horn. The professor radios she is on the way and Archie follows. Meanwhile, Lorenzo is down with two arrows to the horn. Tourette believes he is down for good. Next, they try to raise Cyrano, but he appears to be down as well as he cries out that he thinks his, his beak is broken. Reese, call sign Big Daddy, is on the prowl in search of his friends. Finally, he has a visual, and it isn't Samantha. He tells the others that it's a prehistoric Oliver Queen. So uh, now we have a dig at DC. And they have a nice little banter. Paul. This hotel must cater exclusively to dinosaur clientele. This is my lucky day. Don't hold dinner for me, Professor. This may take a while. 
The two, the two face off, arrow to Uzi. Reese takes out all the arrows except one that he then catches in his mouth and snaps in twain. Tourette is on the run. Samantha the ghost, meanwhile, appears. And Reese tell her, tells her she, she owes him for what happened to his arm. Besides, how is he supposed to go to the bathroom now? Too much information. <laughs> She tells him she can make it up to him, which is just creepy in itself. The whole inner special whatever. Yeah, Tourette, forget that she's a ghost. I mean, <laughs> she, she's a ghost. She's I don't know if she's a prostitute ghost. She looks good for a ghost. She looks kind of like a porn star ghost. Porn star ghost. <laughs> a prostitute ghost. Where do they keep the money? I mean, seriously. <laughs> you don't want to know. Yeah, prostitute ghost is silly. Porn star ghost, on the other hand, that's, that's real, ghost. man. Yeah, Tourette has gone outside to the pool to refer to his dino handbook and waits for Reese. Don't worry, Paul, I won't make you do any more uh, monologue. Okay. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't wait too long as Reese smashes through the door and they both fall into the pool. And it seems like they knock most of the water out of the pool. And uh, they play a quick game of Marco Polo, splash around childishly, until both are surprised by Samantha as she comes up from beneath the bottom of the pool beneath well, yeah, good. Yeah, nice, nice repetition, Bill. She flirts with Turret, who ignores her until she rips open her lingerie and distracts him, while Reese smacks him with his tail, setting him up for the killer belly flop by Archie. And I do mean killer. Turret has given up the ghost and takes off with Samantha to parts unknown, solving our hero's ghost and vigilante problem in one fell swoop. Across the country in L.A. Eternal Man senses a disturbance of cosmic importance. What does it mean? I have no idea. I haven't read any other damn books. The end. It's a rather abrupt ending to a rather abrupt book. The dude at the end is disturbing looking. Yeah, his costume, your eyes go to certain places that your eyes don't need to go. Your eyes don't want to go. <laughs> you know, it's but you're drawn there. You're like, yeah, no, I don't want to look. No, I don't want to look. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it's good to see that, you know, Malibu did not do what the other companies were doing at the time of large crossovers between, oh, you have to read X-Mutants number 11 before getting to the next <laughs> issue. of <laughs> This thing was fascinating. Unlike every level. <laughs> it's just out there. Yeah, I mean, the dinosaurs, some of the ads... Just, uh, you know, the whole Torak riff on it. I mean, obviously, it's supposed to be a parody from the beginning. So, you know, you, you're not meant to take it serious in any way, shape, or form. But it's just so, like, it looks like it was something that was totally conceived in a drug-induced state. <laughs> and no, what? what I'm, what I'm going to take seriously is this Man of War ad where that eagle is pointing down to his crotch. Look here. Right here. Are you looking here? Don't look up there. <laughs> look like, here. It's like, it's like you almost want to hear Seth MacFarlane do Stan Smith's voice for this character. That's funny. I'm funny. That's funny. <laughs> I, the one thing that shocked me was when I flipped the page and Torak, or excuse me, Turret, had shot the woman with the arrow. <laughs> yeah, that I was really I'm surprised like, by that. What? 
And then he, you know, then he lets out that he's a supervillain, but he's the hunter of dinosaurs. Why did he tag a woman? I mean, what is to she... prove that he's a bad guy. <laughs> I guess so. And she's just going on and on. Oh man, it really paid off. I barely broke a sweat. This is great. Yeah, I don't need you for anything. <laughs> Goodbye. I mean, maybe she was just really annoying. Maybe she just had one of those voices. He's just like, I'm tired of you, woman. <laughs> Gone. I, great. Uh... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, great reading as uh, Indian uh, Gary Cooper, Paul, as always. Thank you. That's, you know, it's one of my specialties. You don't you don't often get the call for the Indian Gary Cooper, but when <laughs> when the call comes, I'm ready to answer it. It's like the bat signal got thrown into the air, but it's Gary Cooper with, like, you know, a, a, with a teepee or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know why Dracula's in this, or if it is Drac, or what's going on with this. So I'm going to have to go back and read some of the other ones. It's... It's piqued my interest. Well, that's that's one of the things, I mean, we've talked about in the past, too, is one of the things I look at with every one of these issues is do they make you want to read more? And and I think that's been the case on all three of the books we picked tonight, that, if, if, you know, there's enough there to make you want to see more of it and figure out exactly what's going on or what's going to happen. I mean, how did a half-naked ghost cause a uh, Stegosaurus's arm to be cut off? <laughs> And, and These are the expected. things I'm going to be up half the night thinking about. <laughs> and, and who is the professor and why is she so hot? Mike, come to bed. No, you don't understand. <laughs> there's a stegosaurus know. and there's a ghost. And somehow she caused his arm to fall off. I have to know why. <laughs> but Mike, you have a wife in here. But there's a stegosaurus, honey. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> I have uh, I have four thoughts on this book. One, it was interesting to see Leonard Kirk's early work uh, because I became kind of a fan of his. Didn't didn't he do sort of... X Men twenty ninety nine? That, that I don't know. I came to know him during Supergirl, during Peter David's Supergirl run, and then oh, he drew okay. the last part of the JSA book before Infinite Crisis, and I just loved his style. Uh, I thought you know it, you can see. Even here, he has the chops. Uh, this book is definitely 90s, and I mean that in every way possible. Though, I do appreciate the fact that they, as, as, as Bill said, they kind of have a callback to 80s Marvel gangs, because there's a dude with a mohawk. Uh, <laughs> and in every Marvel street tough gang in the 80s, there was always the one dude with the mohawk. And usually so. the one dude who, had, who would wear the vest with no shirt under it. Yeah, that's another another staple of the gangs of the seventies and eighties. Uh, and then I, I think that's a chick she beats up there too at the end. It is. I, think. I too was shocked that uh, that the girl just got arrowed. But <laughs> what what really grabs me is this Genesis ad. Now we're reading this issue, and I gotta assume that the next month's worth of books haven't come out, and yet. And yet, there's little, like, miniature gone the minute they hit the rack. Muscle McDaniel, Russell McDaniel, Fat Jack's Comic Crypt, Pennsylvania. X-Mutants <laughs> continually sell out. The ferret really moves. Heroes and Legends. So, they're not saying that Genesis is, going, is, is selling fast. They're saying that all these other books are. And it's kind of fascinating to see who the artists are on these. Joe Staten did the cover. For Dinosaurs for Hire, Kiro and Dwyer, Dwyer 
uh, did the cover for the Ferret, and he was uh, he was on Captain America for a little while there, and on Superman at one point. But he was was also temporarily the stepson of John Byrne, which is kind of weird because they were mm-hmm. both they both did a Captain America issue together. Kevin McGuire does a cover, but it's just. Oh, and that's the same Kevin Maguire that just got let go by DC, by uh, DC, right? Uh, according to him, well, yeah, they, well, he was doing the, uh, oh, what was the book? Jeez, I J- JLA three thousand or something, right? Like that. Didn't right, really and, sound like anything. And now he's going to be on the Guardians of the Galaxy book. Yes. So, sorry, I... it's, it's, but it's just. I remember seeing these books and I remember seeing like ads for these books, but I never remember seeing them actually on the stands. Actually seeing the books stand so quickly. That's what that's right. (laughs) Apparently they were off the stand so quickly because the comic shop never ordered them. Oh wait, it says consistently sells out Richard Stockton, Lone Star, Texas. What did they call up? Just one guy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's call this guy. He's got to have an opinion on it. Mike, (laughs) were you ever at Fat Jack's Comic Crypt in Pennsylvania? I remember seeing an ad for it. I don't know exactly where it was, though. But the the main reason I I knew of these uh, these characters at all, well, two ways. One was Comic Scene did an article on the Protectors, and I thought they looked interesting. And I went to this comic shop in 92. They were having a birthday party, Beachhead Comics in Allentown. And as door prizes, he handed out all these bags of stuff. And one of the bags had all of these. It was basically kind of like the direct currents for Malibu comics, but they were all about the image explosion because this was the summer that image was launching. So every month they would cover, a, you know, they had the coverage of a different image book that was coming out with an interview. But in the back, they had ads for all of these, like the ferret and the protectors. And they always looked interesting, but I have a feeling that if I tracked them down, they'd probably be crap. I've heard people talking about the ferret and remembering it fondly. I never read it, so I can't say personally, but I, have... I think I might have some of the protectors. Man, I gotta dig those out. Why? <laughs> Just to see. <laughs> because I have OCD and now I've heard of it. <laughs> no, I'm not John Wilson. Um, sorry, that was mean. <laughs> I think you'd appreciate it. I just think it's terrible that this guy is such a douchebag but ends up with the hot ghost at the end. That seems kind of unfair. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But he did score an 8.2 and a 7.9 on the dive. Archie did, the dinosaur. <laughs> it is good the way he gets taken out. I got to admit that. that was, <laughs> Chris Platt. You, you don't see that often in a comic. Yeah, it's not often a dinosaur dressed in a leather jacket does a three-point landing onto an Indian. <laughs> With gruesome results. Splattering him to death. Dead guys get all the chicks, man. I hope they got condoms in heaven. There is an ad here for the Ultraverse uh, ca- uh, card series. Uh, let's do an experiment. <clears throat> How much would you find one of these on eBay right now? And I'm a talking an entire box. No, no, I'm talking a box. One ninety nine. The what? Wrong. 
I'll say one ninety nine. I'm going to say it has a buy it now of six fifty. Okay, I've put in the search engine Ultraverse Skybox Trading Cards. And a drum roll. Sorry, please. we have no. There's nothing. <laughs> Skybox Ultraverse Factory Sealed Box of thirty six packs. Opening bid with one bid on it seven fifty. Oh. So we're both kind of wrong. There's a buy it now for seven fifty and an opening bid of five dollars. And these are on boxes, not just sets. All right, so, you know what? I'm taking credit for for being pretty on, spot on here. If well, I said six fifty and the buy it now was seven fifty, oh, well, you, you can, did not you go over bid, the retail price. So you can bid on both series that uh, Skybox did in ninety three and ninety four. Uh, opening bid two days left, no bids. Shockingly, uh, for fifteen bucks. That's the minimum. Yeah, that's that's the minimum bid for two boxes of thirty six packs each. Ooh, Malibu. Oh, sorry, I just saw the checklist in the back. Of course, this is my my Doug just showed this time. <laughs> they, Welcome back, Doug. <laughs> they were doing a Necroscope two. Um. I used to read the Necroscope books back in back in the nineties. Uh, of course, I don't really remember a lot of them, <laughs> but they were. Uh, oh, there was a character that. Uh, see, never mind. This would be another for a different podcast. But anyway, he talked to the dead, and then there was vampires, and uh, well, anyway, he could take he he could take talents from the dead, and it just really went off the rails a- after a couple books. <laughs> Sounds like the whole concept's just a little bit off the rails to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> Harry just Koning, I, th- I, I think that, that that was his name, and, and he, was a, he was a necroscope. He could talk to the dead, and he, and he could learn from the dead, and he was fighting the Wampuri, which were vampires from another world, uh, basically like aliens. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting. It was a quick read. That's why I don't read. That's about all I remember from it. And you, oh, but you could lure the you could lure the Wampuri uh, out of the body like a giant tapeworm by starving the host, and then he would like crawl out and exit through the mouth, and it was pretty painful. Ew. <laughs> Sorry. So, did you notice they went into room thirteen thirteen? Isn't that like yes. a that's thirteen thirteen Mockingbird Lane? I was thinking that was the room in The Shining too, wasn't it? That's where the monsters lived. I don't well, know. Yeah. I don't know about in The Shining. But was not the room that where the where the naked lady was in the tub when Jack Nicholson went in there? I don't recall. As long as it's not the one where the guy and the dude in the dog costume are, that That's freaked me weird. out. As yeah, a kid. didn't it? That freaked oh, me out as an adult. Yeah. That that ne- like, never fails to freak me out. Well, like you know, decomposing old naked woman is actually preferable to. <laughs> the the guy in the dog costume. That and, and the, the twin girls always freak me out too. Yeah, the, I, I know I've talked about this before, but the the hotel that hosts the one day comic book show that I'll go to occasionally. It's at the same hotel every one, every time, and once you go through this very like modern lobby, you know, with a, with a really nice restaurant and there's a Starbucks and there's these really great places to sit down. You go into like it's like you enter a time warp and go into a hotel hallway from the seventies. And every time I walk into it, I expect to see two little girls sitting at the end of it, going, "Come buy comics with us, Michael. We'll read them forever and ever and ever." And then they're dead on the floor. 
Uh, probably because I killed them because they freaked me out so much. There's a there's a hotel in Clewiston, Florida. Wait, wait, Paul, Paul, it's our segment. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, now it is time for real life with Doctor Bill Robinson. So one time when I was working down in Clewiston, Florida, there was a hotel that used to be a sugarcane plant plantation back in the 40s and the 30s, and my buddy and I are staying there and. We're walking down the hallways, and there's all these pictures of people from the 1940s and 20s and 30s. And I I turn to my friend and say, if I look in one of these pictures and see myself, I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> That's great. Because <laughs> oh. that was freaky, man. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Because we... we... To bring us full circle from talking about that movie early on in the in the conversation, I don't I don't know if it's part of the episode or not at this point, but certainly part of our conversation. Uh, that was not a bad movie; it was just a bad ad- adaptation of the book. I'll agree with that. I, I think that's a fair statement to make. Did you see the one they did uh, the ABC TV movie back yeah, in the? Uh... That one failed too with Jeff Weber. Stephen Weber. Stephen Weber, excuse me. I, I I didn't think that quite captured it either. Not really. I mean, it, it's you know, it was it was a it was a good attempt, and I liked that they tried to like do things like the um, what is that called the topiaries? Yeah, the topiaries coming to life, which was always kind of a freaky thing from the book itself, and all yeah. that. It's just. He, he didn't. He didn't fit the character to me either, though. Not really, but at the same time, he wasn't terrible. You know, it's just the thing that killed that movie was that kid. Because, mm. and and to some extent, just in the original. My movie, wife just walked in on this conversation, and I was very confused. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, Jack Nicholson's casting kind of killed it too, because there's supposed to be a slow descent of the character. And Jack Nicholson, you know, can never play a totally straight family man. You know, oh, sure he can. He he was, you know, there's always just a little crazy in him at all times. Did you all ever see, uh, it was this great, um, for a while there, people were doing, basically they were taking movies and doing different types of movies with, you know, fake trailers. Like they did a zombie film with footage from uh, West Side Story. and they did a basically a happy family movie with the shining where basically they they were trying to make it seem like jack nicholson and this kid found each other and and they were the ones that were going to get each other through like the tough times and stuff (laughs) and even had like like crappy music and all that it was brilliant absolutely brilliant my my favorite Jack Nicholson moment in that movie is not the stereotypical "Here's Johnny" scene. It's the scene when he's like keeps walking towards her, and With she's the swinging the bat, and he says, "Wendy, darling, darling, light of my life, I am not going to hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your you skull in. I'm gonna you bash it finish. <laughs> I said I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your skull in. Just gonna bash it the fuck in. <laughs> that's that's my favorite Jack Nicholson moment in the movie. I get it, it's 
one, I can't really watch that movie anymore knowing that basically Stanley Kubrick pushed Shelley Duvall towards a, you know, basically she, she almost had a nervous breakdown because of that film. You know, because he, he basically treated her so crappily through the process of it that, you know, he... That's just... I was thinking about this the other day. It was the most random thought ever, but I sat there thinking, you know, it's a movie. I realize that it's artistic and that these people are trying to express themselves through their art, but why would you do that to another human being just to get your shot? You know, it's just like... And poor olive oil would never be the same. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of reasons why she would never be the same, but... Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, my. But we persevere. Yeah. Uh, I, I just found out how uh, the dinosaur lost his arm. Well, tell us, Dr. Bill. So the ghost throws a bunch of uh, cutlery at him and takes out his arm. Because obviously she can move uh, move things with her mind. Um, so, yeah, she threw like a whole drawer of cut cutlery and splotch was the sound effect that took off his arm. We should have covered this issue. Yeah, there's a lot of almost nudity in here. <laughs> <laughs> the cornerstone of any good comic. <laughs> All right, I think we're uh, we're about out of gas here. <laughs> about a gas. I don't know what you're talking. <laughs> yeah, that's the last thing we want to do is put somebody. I, as far as I know. <laughs> Stop! Oh God, my wife and the dog are t- uh, teaming up on me. Go get him, Rachel. <laughs> they just said go get him, Rachel. So you were being you were being cheered on. Okay. No, 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 no. Uh, good for her. Say swear to me. <laughs> oh, you think that's going to protect you? Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.